Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. On the episode today, we have... Hi, other Adam Spencer. I'm the other Alan Jones, and I'm a tech angel investor and VC fund investor. Take us right back, you know, before it was the Australian startup ecosystem. When would you say you were first exposed to the startup world? My uh, dad brought home a personal computer. He was a chiropractor and he had two um, practices. And, uh, and some of the patients went from one practice to the other. You know, he'd see them in different places. And, uh, and so a filing card system to keep track of all his client records wasn't working very well. So he decided to teach, him how to use, teach himself how to use a personal computer um, and build his own database so he could manage his clients on, on a personal computer. And, and he didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about it, but I was kind of drawn to it back then. And so when he wasn't using um, the family computer and, the, and tying up the, the family home phone line, um, I would jump onto onto bulletin boards, which were basically a, a stack of, of modems connected to a computer that sat in somebody's cupboard or, or you know under their desk in their spare room, and uh, and you would dial into these things, and they would give you sort of a message board sort of experience. Many of them were connected to um, to similar sorts of bulletin board computers set up on other people's cupboards all around the world, and so gradually these systems would, would copy and paste, would kind of transfer all of the message traffic from one onto another onto another. And so if you waited for long enough, you know, maybe 48 hours in some cases, um, it, it would all synchronize. So anyway, I, I, it just, I was like 16 and nobody knew that I was a 16 year old. And so I really enjoyed pretending to be an adult and engaging in adult conversations with people from all around the world about all sorts of topics, politics, the environment, technology, that kind of thing. And that was my first love. And then CompuServe came along and, um, and Apple had a service called eWorld and it became more of a, more of a live simultaneous thing. Um, it wasn't just held together by volunteers with, with uh, um, brown string and, and, and sticky tape. It, it, it started to become sort of a commercial thing that you had to pay to use. But that thread of wanting to communicate with other people and share openly and, and be able to debate all sorts of things um, with minimum of, of moderation in most cases uh, was, was kind of the, the, that lit the blue touch paper um, underneath me. And, and I started to write and writing eventually took me to the internet. Uh, um, I, uh, I did okay in English at school. Thought I wanted to be a chiropractor like my dad, so I, so I spent um, a few years uh, 
failing very badly at, at, in an anatomy degree and then dropped out, did a bunch of dead-end jobs um, and finally managed to, to uh, make my way into a communications degree and started writing. And of course, I wanted to write for, for computer magazines, which in those days before the real internet were the way that you found out about what was happening in technology. Like the news, you had to, you had to subscribe to, to technology news. Um, I was walking past Park Avenue in, in um, uh, Park Street in, in Sydney um, the other day with, with someone younger than me, and I pointed to the, to the Park Street, what used to be the Park Street headquarters of um, ACP, um, Kerry Packer's uh, magazine publishing empire. And I think um, I remember there being maybe four or possibly even five different computer publications being published by that one publisher in Australia. The one that I worked for at the time was, was with a different publisher called IDG, but I, I, was, I was the editor of a publication that was all about all things Apple. Everybody who bought that magazine only cared about Apple stuff, which is a bit of a mind-blowing experience now. But you know, if, if you were the person in a company that needed to decide what sort of computers to buy in the company, you had to buy a computer magazine or you had to go to a computer expo, which would happen like maybe twice a year in Australia and it would cost you, you know, $300, $400 a ticket. Um, and, and this was all because we had no internet. You know, you had to, you had to read something um, and you would keep all of the issues, um, you know, in a, in a folder on your, on your bookshelf so that if somebody, uh, you know, you needed suddenly, oh, I need to know about laser printers or, or dot matrix printers or something, you, you could flip to the, to the issue back last July where they did a comparison of, of the top dot matrix printers, you know. Um, so just as a, as a, as a young reporter, um, that, was a, that was a really great opportunity to get to understand the technology industry because although just in my early 20s I had, I had great power and influence because whatever I wrote in my magazine, um, buyers of technology took as gospel. And so I'd get flown business class um, to San Francisco and picked up in a stretch limo and taken to a five-star hotel and then spend a whole week, you know, going, interviewing executives, going to, to other computer trade shows, um, seeing previews of technology coming up there, all in the hope that I might go and write about that for my publication. Now, of course, at the time, I had no idea how huge my, my privilege was um, and, and how rapidly that was going to disappear. But I do remember the moment that it began to happen. So we took a chunk of the content for our publication from our US sister publication. Um, and back in those days, it was all uh, Quark Express um, page layout files, right? And it's trivial now, but at the time, the idea that you might have like 500 megabytes of page layout, that, that, that felt like moving around a, a nuclear missile, you know? Like it was... It, it weighed several tons. You had to close the roads when you moved it. It was very fragile and it might explode and break everything. But to take like a 12-page feature from a computer magazine from, from one set of printers in San Francisco to another set of printers in Sydney was an incredibly fraught and dangerous exercise. It would all get bundled onto, onto um, originally um, a thing called a Bernoulli drive, which was kind of like an early prototype portable uh, disk drive. And then later on we went to zip disks. But then one day somebody invented you know, FTP and we started to play with FTP at our, at our computer magazine and we would send these, try and send these enormous files across the internet. But it might take a week to get it because the first version of FTP, if the phone line dropped out, you would lose all of the data that, you know, you would have an incomplete data file. So you'd come in the next morning and find that that, you know, 100 megabyte file had stopped partway through because somebody else had tried to use the telephone or something. And you'd have to start it again. You'd have to hope that you'd get it the next morning. So when they invented a version of FTP that would automatically pick up after there'd been an interruption to the communication, um, that massively changed computer magazine publishing for me. Um, so that was our opportunity to, to start to play with, you know, sending big files over the internet, which is, I guess, you know, what, what the internet is all about. But, but I could see as we started to share more of our content from our, our publications, first of all, on what we used to call the World Wide Web, and then we, we started spreading and, you know, we started to do licensing deals with, with, uh, with portals like AOL and Excite and Yahoo and MSN start to look like this might be the beginning of, of the end of, of, of print journalism. Um, and I started to think about, well, you know what, laying out a web page is a lot like 
laying out a, a magazine. You know, websites were really pretty simple things back then. They were mainly about display and, and commercializing them was mainly about putting some pretty photos and words on, on a web page and selling some ads around that to make that work. And I thought, well, maybe my skills are relative to transferable and maybe almost nobody else knows how to do web page building as well. So I decided to kind of see if I could take a leap. What year was that? Um, this was uh, like 93, 94, I started to, to explore that. There were a couple of other people from computer journalism in Australia that were, that were thinking the same way and starting to do the similar sorts of things. Um, Jeremy Horry used to be a, an editor at ACP and, and Darren Edwards used to edit a thing called PC Week. Um, there, <laughs> there used to be a weekly magazine. It was probably 20, 24 pages, color through most of it. It was, it was broadsheet size and it was weekly and it was all about what was going on in the computer industry and that was just for the Australian market, right? That was published here. There was even a daily thing. There was a daily email newsletter that you would have to pay like four or $500 a year to subscribe to and that was mainly for people who worked in the technology industry itself. That was called Computer Daily News and it was published by a guy called David Frith. Like it probably had about you know, 750 to 1,000 words. It was all text. There was nothing to link to because we didn't have a World Wide Web when it first started. But David and his hardworking team of reporters, eccentric, crazy people like Gareth Powell um, and, and, and Paul Zorko, who's, who's Sally Nagel with us, would, would like smash out this stuff overnight. They'd go to a press conference. They'd, they'd write it up on, on what sort of early sort of prototype laptop-y thing that they could persuade a technology vendor to give them for free. And then sent it out via email the next morning to, to at, at its peak, like, you know, four or 5,000 paying subscribers every morning. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And the internet came along and ruined it for everybody. <laughs> Would you say, so you have had a strong interest in computing or, or computers. Mm. It, it seems to me that in Australia, at least, that, that, well, definitely the tech community and the kind of computing programmer community overlaps. But in Australia, it seems like the tech community kind of, well, the people that are in the tech community today, a lot of them come out of the computing and programming, you know, software, et cetera, communities of back in the 90s and, and early 2000s. Is that how you see it evolving? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's very accurate. There was like a, there was an information technology industry you know, there was a there was and 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 that was largely in Australia about helping big banks and insurance companies and government departments keep track of of, of lots of data and uh, some of the smart things that early Australian federal governments did back then was you know relatively smart. They, if if you wanted to be a big IT vendor selling into Australian government, you had to commit to doing some R&D here in Australia. You had to spend a bunch of money on, on, on a computer lab, employ a bunch of, of computer engineers. You'd, you'd usually you know, import some senior talent from, from your, your headquarters overseas to come and sort of get things started here. You might work with Australian Computer Society, which is kind of the trade union of programmers in Australia to come up with a, like a, a scholarship system and you'd start recruiting talent at universities and you'd try and influence the way that universities were teaching their computer science students so that they were more familiar with, you know, because the ecosystem was, was very, very siloed back then. Like each, each individual IT um, manufacturer had not only their own dedicated hardware, but usually completely dedicated operating system and programmer languages and, and the whole stack was, was, was not interoperable because there was no need for it to, to interoperate. You, you bought from IBM and IBM provided everything. You bought from Fujitsu and Fujitsu provided everything. And what that led to was, was effectively you know, a lot of very smart programmers who were very bored a lot of the time. You know, some of those people still exist. You know? There are still people who care and maintain these, these aging deck vax mainframes and, and, and still experts in, in, in COBOL programming. Um, and, and, and they are there just to keep, you know, some of the deepest substrata of, of, of Australian daily life running, you know, I'm sure still in our, in our big five banks and our big insurers um, and, and some of our government departments, I'm sure there are still some, some legacy systems there where, where people get paid you know, half a million dollars a year to walk around with a pager on their belt that goes off when, when, when something weird happens to the ATM network and nobody's quite sure why. So the transition from writing into web page layouts, did that transition kind of lead you into Yahoo? Yeah, it did. 
Yeah, I, I mentioned um, Darren Edwards and Jeremy Horry before, and uh, the third person was Martin Herk Goldberg. And, and Martin and Darren and Jeremy had this little business called Tech Talk where they, they did um, contract editorial uh, work for, for a variety of tech vendors. You know, if you were a customer of Microsoft, you used to receive once a quarter a, a printed magazine from, from Microsoft about the latest products and tips and tricks on how to use it. It was, you know, the internet in print form. And... Um, through doing that, um, they, they, they uh, you know, their, their client was, was Daniel Petri, um, now Airtree co-founder, then um, country manager, managing director of, of, of Microsoft Australia. And uh, Daniel sat down um, with the Tech Talk guys one day and said, you know, you've been doing a great job of, 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 the, um, of the customer publications for us, um, but look, there's this thing going on at Microsoft back at head office in, in Seattle, they're working on this thing called MSN, it's going to be a bit like AOL, and it's going to be like a like a safe, high quality subset of, of the internet that's going to be like curated for you by by Microsoft. And, and I think, you know, there's a role for Australia to to create some some content in there as well. And and uh, and he said, you know, I want you guys to to um, you know have a think about what you might do. And uh, and and I got sort of pulled into that orbit. You know, we go out for beers and discuss it. And I got excited about it and the potential. And they said, "Do you want to help?" And I said, "Sure, I'd love to do that." So one of the first things that we did was um, we set up. Uh, Microsoft did a, a little joint venture experiment with with Telstra called Telstra on Australia. I think it was called. And and on the Telstra side, the the head of it, um, you know, Nudie Juices. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the, the original founder of Nudie Juice uh, was this guy Tim Tim Pethick, and and his 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 nickname was was Tall Tim, um, but at the time he was a he was a Telstra exec. They literally built like it was a web page. That's that's how it started, and and it was called Telstra on Australia. And on the web page there was like a couple of links to some search engines and some daily news that was added manually. You know, some headlines, um, and and one of the things there that we did for them was a a, a weekly chat show, um, a celebrity interview guest chat show, um, and this would have been '94, I reckon. We probably started. And so you think, oh, you know, I've seen Graham Norton. You know, what's 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 the big deal? You know, the fact that that's happening on the internet. But the remarkable thing about it was that it was text. It was all text chat, because the internet just didn't go fast enough. I, I had a magazine cover for, that I think I lost along the way, but but it was a magazine cover that I, the cover story of that issue was how Telstra had just upgraded Australia's only connection to the internet and doubled it, um, and 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 it had gone from like. Five megabits per second to ten. You know, it was it was. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly right, but it was in the order of that sort of magnitude. Nobody in Australia could even listen to a podcast back then. You know, an audio file file over the internet was amazing. You know, I, I had a um, a digital recording of of uh, the, the first twelve bars of Van Halen's Jump, and it took up an entire one point four megabyte floppy disk. <laughs> that's how good compression was. Um, so anyway, we we did this. Uh, um, show at, at uh, 8 p.m. On a, on a Sunday night uh, every week, and the whole thing was text. So we had a one text chat room where where the audience were all together, and if we had enough audience, then it would kind of butt off additional chat rooms. So the audience could all talk to each other, and they could also ask questions of of the of the celebrity guests. And then we had another chat room with with Darren and I, the, the two co-hosts, um, and the celebrity guest. And uh, and that's where the you know the the chat show would happen, um, and so we'd be looking for interesting questions from the audience, um, and we had obviously our, our own questions that we'd pre-written and you know copy paste copy paste you know paste the next question in and the guest was there, so none of our guests being celebrities and important people um, had any personal computer experience because there were two kinds of people that used pers used personal computers back then you know there were computer nerds and there were secretaries there were literally you know I went for a PR agency that had a typing pool for a while there <laughs> um, and uh, and so yeah celebrities celebrities didn't know how to use a computer they weren't really on the internet um, they certainly couldn't type fast enough to, to keep pace in a chat room so you know we had we had Malcolm Turnbull as a, as a guest for instance um, you know he wasn't about to sit down at a personal computer and type back then um, so we had like an assistant producer who would who would you know read out the question to Mr. Turnbull. Mr. Turnbull would answer, and they'd do their best to sort of you know key it in verbatim. I remember one night we had um, mental as anything in for an interview, and uh, and and Greedy Smith spent the entire hour sort of wandering around the office with a very sort of puzzled look on his face. And it wasn't until about thirty minutes in where he went so. 
So all this stuff happening on the that's is that where the audience is? <laughs> it was such a such a, a head spin. So we had like prizes from sponsors. We'd have quizzes and giveaways, um, and and sometimes you know we would get several thousand simultaneous um, audience members in the in these uh, in these uh, Sunday night shows. Um, and, and so that that was kind of that was. Um, kind of the beginning of finding an audience really, you know, a, a mass audience for me and, and maybe in Australia. Um, but anyway, Daniel Petri from Microsoft said that was really great. Um, I think we, we could do some stuff. Um, so go away and come up with, with, with some more ideas. Go and see what else is really successful on the internet and other markets and, and come back with some ideas. And so we came back with a shopping list and there might have been like 15, 20 ideas on that list and we hoped that he might greenlight one or two. Um, and and he, he greenlit nearly all of them. And so suddenly we were on the hook, you know, and you know, we could invoice him and he'd pay us at the end of the month, you know, we were gonna get paid, but we didn't really have any idea how to actually create these things or produce them. What were some of them? Uh, well, the one that I, that I remember the most that I love so much was called Friday's Beach. Um, and, and, and again, like not limited by um, Australia's lack of bandwidth at the time, or the internet's lack of bandwidth at the time, Friday's Beach was a soap opera. There was something similar happening in, in California at the time. There, are, there were a few people that were doing uh, live um, webcams um, of, of their lives. You know, they would set a camera up in their bedroom, whatever, and it would be on all the time and you could just tune in and watch it. Then, then there was this one thing that was kind of semi-scripted and semi-live where a bunch of people were all living in their house together and they were trying to stitch a narrative together. And so we decided we wanted to go further into the narrative side of it. And, and Friday's Beach was, was a classic Aussie teen soap opera. We literally, we hired somebody from Neighbours to, to write the scripts for this thing. So we had, we had a, a, a live cast, uh, I think, of, of, of six young actors. And we, we had to negotiate with the Media and Entertainment Arts Alliance to get a, 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 an award rate for an internet actor in Australia so that we knew how much to pay them and so that we knew we wouldn't cause any industrial action. And we would go into um, a sound studio and briefly rehearse the, the scripts for each episode. And then we'd all pile onto a minibus and we would go to like the four locations where we would shoot video. Um, and then once we'd done that, we'd come back into the audio studio again and we'd record the whole thing as, an, as a radio play, basically. And then the script writer. Um, so if, if you couldn't watch the video, which was nearly everybody, you could maybe listen to the audio. And if you couldn't, didn't have enough bandwidth to, to listen to the audio, then you could fall back on these like daily blog posts that were ghostwritten by the by the writer in, in the style of each character. So you could follow the story along. Um, so we only did one season of, of Friday's Beach um, and nobody made it big from there. <laughs> nobody went on to, to a huge career. Um, but yeah, we just started to, to mess with, with stuff like that. So I ended up going to work um, full-time at Microsoft in Australia on, on something called Sidewalk which was uh, uh, an international, you know, for, for, the, for the kids listening, uh, there's no direct parallel, um, but, but it, was, uh, it, it was a gig guide and it was a restaurant guide and it was a bar guide and it was a beach guide and it was where to go on the Sundays to the best markets in town. And it, and it was meant to be, I think, across seven or eight cities worldwide and, and Sydney was going to be one of those cities. So that was headed by a guy called David Harrington who, who went on to... Uh, become the founder and CEO of, of, of an early sort of small to medium business uh, web hosting business called Pcow um, that that was that was going to be one of the of the superstars of, of the early Australian um, uh, tech startup industry and, and sadly kind of um, ran out of puff um, because of the high cost back then of of, of uh, hosting data on the behalf of businesses. So yes, yeah, Sidewalk was was a real blast. Um, we, we set ourselves the goal of, of ensuring that you could accurately find out, um, find a review of every currently open bar and restaurant and club and um, experience that you could have in Sydney. So there was a huge freelance editorial crew running through, um, through uh, an outsourced provider. And uh, obviously it failed. Um, the, <laughs> the part of the model that was broken was we were gonna sell in you know, a marketing to, to the owners of, the, of these businesses. You're a cafe, you don't have time or, the, or understand how to build a website for your business, but we can give you like a website light and, and, and you, can, you can pay to be exposed to that. Um, and it was, it was way, too, way too early for, for that sort of industry to, to be interested in. And then on the other side for consumers, yes, you and I could plan what we were gonna do on our date tonight, but um, after, after we'd agreed on what to do using Sidewalk, uh, we would have to print it out and take it with us because there was still no smartphones 
So I got a bit frustrated with Microsoft's need to um, control the web, you know, make it something that was delivered through Internet Explorer and Internet Explorer only, um, and, and, and had all these gross and subtle ways of discouraging people from exploring the rest of the web. I was getting very interested in open source at this stage. And so I, um, I pretty much made myself unemployable. And then a friend of a friend was, was recruiting for, for, um, for Yahoo at the time. And uh, the original plan for Yahoo in Australia and New Zealand was that it would be a, a joint venture with a, with a media publisher. All of Yahoo's previous international efforts had been joint ventures with either uh, an internet service provider, um, i.e. a telco, or, or, or a media company, so that there was, you could provide access to the internet to people plus a Yahoo service over the top of it, or you could provide a Yahoo service plus local content. And um, negotiations with, with APN uh, fell through before I knew anything about it. But, but the guy at, at, at um, APN who had been leading the APN side of the negotiations said, um, uh, well, you know, APN don't want to do it anymore, Yahoo, but, but would you back me? Um, and so his, his name was Tony Four, and he was introduced to me uh, by, by a friend of a friend. And so I, I went to work for him and, and we kicked off Yahoo Australia New Zealand. Um, I, think, I think we launched with, with uh, three people working for Yahoo in Australia. And it took us about six weeks to go from just an idea to, to get the thing up and live and, and launched with advertisers and content. And it, it was a crazy time, a lot of 18 hour days. When did that, um, so Alan Jones, the content creator, producer, when did we, and I'm talking about you, by the way. Uh, when when <laughs> when did we? Because um, I know you as the startup guy, right? The the technology guy. When would you say that kind of transition happened, or don't you view it as a transition? Well, I, I think that first generation of Australian tech startups were media companies. They were they were just online media companies instead of um, mobile banking apps, and and uh, mm. you know, so you know, the, there wasn't really much of a, a game, or, or, or it wasn't really much of a software publishing industry in Australia at that time, at least, you know, where it existed, it was just in enterprise IT things, things to help banks run more smoothly. The first generation of Australian tech startups were, were, were media companies. We, we put content on pages and sold ads on them. Um, so Optus had a joint venture with, it, with a US company called Excite, and, uh, and there was um, AIR World joint venture, I think with 10 maybe originally, and then 10 launched its own thing. Uh, Village Roadshow had something as well uh seven noodled around and, and then nine ended up getting into bed with with uh microsoft and doing making msn australia into nine msn these were real really really media business we, we weren't doing very much other than that the news publishers were were really really cautious about putting any of their their precious editorial content on the internet in the early days the, the first media licensing deal I think in Australia was 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 one that I did with um, with the Australian, and uh, we you know, we need to have some news headlines and, and as much of the news story itself on on Yahoo Australian New Zealand as, as we could. And what we wanted to do was serve that news, run ads on it, and share the revenue with our with our news partner. But News Limited, you know, would say, "Don't you know who the hell we are? You know, we're, we're News Limited. We don't need any help selling ads." And uh, you know, this this content costs us a lot of money to to produce. You can go jump, and uh, and we would say, "Yeah, but you don't understand about these online ads. You know, it's not like selling print ads. It's different. It takes different people. You need different relationships with brands. You know, we're, we're going to be much much better at this." And they would say, "Oh yeah, you know, come back in, in three years when when you've given up, and we'll talk about how little we'll pay uh, for what you've made." Um, so it was very hard. So I ended up, that first news deal was just the headline and I think the first 250 characters of each story. And then at the end of the story, there was, a, there was an ellipsis, you know, a dot, 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 and then a link to the full story on the Australian website. So content was really, really valuable and very, very expensive in the early days. Um, so they didn't leave much space for anything else. The banks were very conservative. Qantas kind of got going a little bit relatively early on and they would show you, you know, flight arrival and departure times. There was a, a tech startup called um, uh, travel.com.au um, that wanted to be offering you online travel bookings, you know, book a flight, book a hotel, that kind of thing. And, and it kind of looked like you were on the front end. You'd, you'd use a, you know, search, you'd fill in a form and you'd hit submit and stuff. 
but then nothing would happen. And then you'd get an email back from travel.com.au. Like, you know, that would display, these are the flight options that you have. And you go, oh, yes, please. I'll take the 11 a.m. on Tuesday one. And you hit submit. And, and it would go, right, we'll be right back to you. And then that would go to a human that sat at a desk at travel.com.au who had the, the, you know, the airline's flight booking system open on a mainframe terminal and, go, do, 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 and actually make the booking for you and send it to you. Uh, so things were, were incredibly manual. I mean, I used to, I used to edit the, have to edit the, uh, the homepage every Sunday night of, of Yahoo Australia New Zealand because there was one little ad unit. It was the only ad unit we would allow on a homepage in the early days. Like ad, ads in, in between content were like, um, there was the church and state battle between advertising sales who would take the entire homepage of Yahoo if we let them and editorial, which is where I sat, where we you know, tried to always make it clear to, to customers what was editorial and what was advertising, right? And so we had this little tiny ad spot um, and it was, it was one of the last ad positions on, on the Yahoo network to be automated, to be added to our ad um, serving uh, infrastructure. So it had to be changed manually. So I had to log into Yahoo from wherever I was traveling at that time, you know, business meeting and things, which, which often meant in a hotel room, unscrewing the phone panel with a little bag of tools that I would take, you know, getting some alligator clips and pairing the, the, the insulation plastic off, off the phone cable to attach my alligator clips to my modem so I could dial in and change the advertiser. Um, and, and mind you, in these days, you know, online advertising was sold in impressions, not in clicks. So advertisers were paying, you know, to, to get from, from midnight Sunday to midnight Sunday. However many people came to the homepage on Yahoo, that, would, that, was, that was what they paid for, right? And, 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 uh, and uh, you know, if, if, if nobody clicked on the ad, that was, that was the advertiser's fault. So you still paid Yahoo, you know? Was, Yahoo wasn't going to go, well, tell me so you didn't get any clicks. You don't have to pay for that. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, so sometimes I would stuff that up because I'd be in a hurry, I'd be stressed, it'd be late at night, um, I'd had a big day, and uh, and I, I, you know, it was all HTML hand coded, and I'm a I'm a writer, not a not a software engineer, and uh, sometimes I'd bugger it up, and, and I'd hit publish, and then I'd go and check the homepage, and the homepage was broken, <laughs> then I'd have to like debug, figure out what I'd done wrong, fix it, and publish it again. A lot of people point to 2011, 12, that kind of period to say that's when the community really started to get going. Hmm. Yeah, it is. Why? Well, why, but also what laid the foundation for that? But people probably just don't know. I'm going to go with a couple of things. So, so one thing was the, the, the surge of, of venture capital around... 96 through through 2000 was 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 mainly spent on establishing brands of of the first generation of of e-commerce startups you know so so pets.com kinds of startups that were aspiring to deliver you something to you to your home quicker and easier than the store and because most consumers still weren't on, on the internet at that stage, you had to spend a chunk of your money on the side of buses and, and billboards on highways and television commercials to get people to come to your uh, web address and, and um, buy a bag of dog food for the first time. So that was incredibly expensive. Um, but then you had to spend it with, with um, these early online media companies as well. And, and the problem that we kept running into was it was a lack of ad inventory. A big part of my job in those early days was ad salespeople coming to me and saying, Al, 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 dude, I've just sold this, like, you know, I've just, I've, I've got this, this new advertising customer. It's uh, Kathmandu, right? And, and so can we build a Yahoo outdoors? <laughs> can we do that? Can we have that like by, like by next Friday? Can we do that? Is that possible? Because you know, there's a million dollars on the line here. And I go, no, 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 we are just like, where ought to get the content from? There is, you know, none of the outdoor magazines are publishing on the web yet. Uh, that's impossible. But we've got all this search inventory, you know, people going to Yahoo every day and searching for backpack. We can serve ads there, and, go, and, and that ad salesperson goes, "No, no, no! I've, I've been there, and all those all those ad spots are already already bought. Other advertisers already have those spots. So we used to run out of the ad inventory on big keywords all the time, and so all all of the pricing for all of that was was all set manually. There were no algorithms doing that. So that meant that you know we would build in a whole bunch of wiggle room there. So that meant that ad inventory got much much more expensive, much much more quickly. We were, we were not selling the long tail, the 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 you know the the words that people hardly ever search for. We weren't selling that at all. We were just like selling the top five or, or the top ten keywords for huge money, um, and so that both built 
a very small number of successful tech startups, but also destroyed a much, much larger set of, of tech startups that, that, were, that were venture funded. And again, I'm, I'm mostly speaking about, about US tech startups at that time. But when they imploded, they just released a flood of talented and, and slightly experienced tech startup founders who were starting to understand a thing or two. Another thing that, that changed, I think, around that time, so there's two more things. Another thing that changed around that time was was social media. The early versions of social media started to bring a, a broader set of society onto the web for the for the first time to to rediscover with old university friends and, and old high school friends what they were doing now and spend a little bit more time getting to know their their workmates their lives outside of work um, so things like friendster and, and myspace and, and orkut you know all pre-facebook um, and, and so that meant that with a, a time online increasing time online that freed up a, a whole lot of inventory and then the other thing that 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 really changed is is that the technology industry realized that the power of the long tail, that it would be much more effective to sell clicks rather than impressions and only charge advertisers when somebody clicked on the ad. And so that made online advertising much more accessible for, for a much broader set of, of much less well-funded online brands to, to get going when, when they only had to pay for clicks. Now at, at Yahoo, we fought that to the death. There was a company called Overture that, that were kind of early out of the gates and then Google followed immediately after and um, and at Yahoo we had this editorial and sales thing and we were worried that if somebody was using a search engine to search for a backpack um, if we blended advertisers in with with actual real web results um, that we would be doing our users um, a disservice and you know, we actually you know we, we user tested this we thought we did user research but our own cognitive biases led us to misinterpret the data really and and uh and, and so you know we we didn't see uh, programmatic advertising coming we thought our duty was to serve the, the the brand and the brand's agency not the actual um you know the the startup itself but google empowered a whole bunch of startups to go and figure out their own advertising strategy without an advertising agency involved and it didn't matter really what was in the ad all that mattered was if people clicked on it and you could test a whole bunch of varieties of different ads to see what people clicked on. You could never really afford to do that on a, on a per impression basis. The, the, sorry, there is, there's one more thing. <laughs> and that is the um, Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi has played an enormous role in, in, in the growth of, of the tech startup industry. Because you know, prior to Wi-Fi, you had to connect your computer to everybody else's computer via an Ethernet cable. And, and generally speaking, that meant there had to be you know, a little a socket in the wall where you could plug in. And, and the cable and the sockets and the, and the device that connected them all together and connected that to the internet was, was you know, pretty expensive and non-trivial to install. So offices had them and corporate campuses and maybe universities, but almost nowhere else, right? So if you and three friends were thinking about getting started and doing your own startup, almost though, like the first thing you had to figure out was like, where are we going to collaborate on this from? You know, you couldn't just go and sit in a co-working space. You couldn't have a co-working space. You couldn't afford to put in enough internet ports in the space unless, you know, you were a corporation and, you know, you were paying a, a big property manager um, serious money every year to, to lease a corporate headquarters. And so when, when we started Yahoo Australia New Zealand, we actually, we got a favor from, from APN, the, the media company, and uh, we, we uh, kind of sublet one of their meeting rooms. Now, from memory, you know, for probably maybe almost a year, we were all working from this little meeting room with a limited number of, of Ethernet ports and cable snaking away from the one meeting room table where we all sat. You had to be careful, you know, coming and leaving because you could chip over somebody's Ethernet cable, bugger up what they were doing. So Wi-Fi let us work from informal spaces. It allowed us to be connected to the internet from home without interrupting everybody else's use of the telephone. And, and it also meant that we could collaborate and do our own work at the same time. Back then, it was a very foreign concept that we might all take our laptops to a coffee shop and sit there on a table and collaborate and work at the same time. Because the work part where you needed to have your computer connected to the internet was, was expensive and difficult to arrange. And so like that was dedicated time. And I remember figuring out how to do that. Um, after I left Yahoo in 2002, a bunch of us ex-Yahoo's came together and we decided to build like a Netflix for Australia called Home Screen. And we had to rent some office space to work from that because it was, it was pre ubiquitous Wi-Fi and we rented this windowless room near the railway station in Hurstville uh, and worked me and four developers for like six months on, on the web platform for this thing and we started we were locked in this room all of the time and, and at the beginning 
we would call a timeout, we'd re reconfigure the chairs, we'd go over to a whiteboard and we'd sketch things on the whiteboard and then everybody would come back to their desks and, and you'd just hear clicking and clicking and clicking, there'd be no talk. And then somebody else would need something to discuss and then we'd get up and we'd do it. And I'd gradually migrated towards you know, having, having a Yahoo Messenger chat window or an AOL uh, instant messenger chat window and, and have a thread of conversation going all the time while we each did our, our own work at, at the same time. Um, and, and that primarily happened because at the end of each day when we're able to go back home to our homes and continue to work in our, in our spare bedrooms, we could just be connected to the, to the Wi-Fi and so that conversation could continue. I just... <laughs> <laughs> the past is a foreign world. <laughs> it's an alien planet. There's so much I'm realizing we need to talk about. Um, but can we just talk briefly about, from your point of view, what do you think are some areas where we need to improve today still? Like some of the biggest gaps that you've kind of observed. Yeah. Um, I, I think the Australian tech startup industry still has a bit of a problem with people entering the industry because they want to be the, the founder of a startup. And, uh, and, and that's, a, that's a pretty inefficient way for the industry to work, where we have to repurpose people who aspire to be a CEO and make them an employee, or, or even you know a senior member of a small but growing team. That can be a, a pretty tough thing. So, so one challenge that our, our industry has is that most of what the rest of the world knows about us is, is what they've read about um, Mike and Scott from Atlassian and Melanie and Cliff from Canva. You know, the CEOs, the leaders, and when they look at the technology companies overseas, you know, they, they all know Bill Gates's name, they all know Elon Musk, they all know Jeff Bezos. These are all CEOs. And the reality in, in each case is that um, all of these companies were initiated by a very small number of people, but you know, within a couple of months of it um, getting going, it's it's not just the the CEOs or the founders anymore, but it's a, it's a team of early people who contribute enormously to the success or failure of the venture. A good friend of mine, uh, Protibo Rai, who who's on Twitter as the crazy one, and, and and that's a recurring theme for her. You know, um, she and a number of people talk about how um, we're kind of trapped in this because. The, the majority of the recognition, the majority of the respect, and the majority of the financial rewards is, is biased towards the, the, the CEO and, and, and the founder or, or co-founders, and, and not enough is, is shared with, with the remaining members of, of the team. If, if, if I could change you know, one thing, I guess, you know, I, I, I would be encouraging people considering a career in tech startups in Australia to think about um, you know, how do I develop a skill set that might be useful to a startup so that I can begin to contribute to a people of, of 20 people. You know, the question shouldn't be how am I going to find um, a software engineer to build the idea that I have for my app. It, it should be um, how do I learn enough about software engineering so that when I get my business to the point where I can afford to an employee software engineer, I might know enough about how to manage them effectively and, and even just express you know, what I think the vision should be. How do I learn enough about what they bring to the table to, to actually involve them in, 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 the, in the, what the strategy should be? You know, the fundamental difference, I think, between being an employee and being a co-founder is, is that co-founders have a, have a consensual view of the problem that we're solving, the customer we're solving it for, and, and, and how our solution is going to be better and why. Um, and you don't arrive at that by, by barking instructions. You know, that's certainly not how Australia's best tech startup founders have achieved it along the way. And we just have this kind of naive and, and simplistic way of, of looking at it culturally in Australia. In the US, it's it's related in a way. You know, certainly all of the publicity and outsized amount of, of the financial returns go to the original founders of the company. But I think there's, there's much more of an awareness there that, that begins in, in high school and leads into into some of the great American colleges where you understand that... that you're being educated, um, you're looking for, for internships and, and um, work experience um, with, with larger technology companies um, that understand that, that once you're fully vested, once you've been there for, for five years and, and your equity is now worth something and you can sell it to somebody, but the most likely outcome for you is that you're going to leave and, and, and you know, form a new startup, maybe with, with some of your ex-colleagues from the company. You know, that's a healthy, normal part of how we seed our ecosystem that I don't think we do nearly enough of in, in Australia yet. A podcast idea there called Too Many Chefs, uh, where we talk to product people, software engineers, we talk to all the people that make it possible that don't get the headlines. Um, what advice would you give a new founder? 
<laughs> I guess I've just said, don't be a founder. <laughs> yeah. um, another really good reason to not be a founder um, is, you know, you're the last person to get paid and all of your eggs are in one basket. You know, so so um, I talked about home screen before. There are, there are a few other startups um, that that I tried to found or co-found that never amounted to much, and so so I won't go there. But eventually, when I hit about forty, I started to realize, you know, I can only do one startup at a time. And by the time I get my crap together and, and validate this, it's probably going to be a couple of years before I figure out whether this is really going to work or not. Um, and and at my you know average rate of success, I'm going to be like 75 years old and still trying to get the next one up, hoping that the next one will be successful. And I just didn't think that that was viable. Whereas you can go and work for an incredible company, um, you know. And I think I think the sweet spot is is you know somewhere between five and 20 employees. Um, but even you know in the first couple hundred, depending on the company and 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 how the culture works, you can still make an incredible difference work with some of the best people in the world you know and at the end of the fortnight or the end of the month you get a pay slip and somebody's deposited some some money into your super fund for you and uh you know you can get some annual leave that's that's paid and uh you know they give you some money to buy a laptop to use at home you know as, as the CEO and founder, not only you you are very unlikely to succeed in each startup that you do, um, but you have maximum insecurity. So you're, you're betting everything on not just on black, but on 12 black, you know, or seven or, or, or eight black. Um, so, you know, I would say if you want to have a career in startups rather than be a billionaire, learn some marketable skills and, and find an early stage startup to go to work for. And right now, just like every other industry category in Australia, it's never been harder to, to find great talent. So salaries are creeping up, conditions are creeping up, and startups more than any other category of employer in Australia are, are more prepared to take a bit of a risk to um, you know, look beyond whether or not you, you match up to the minimum requirements of the role and you know, gradually more likely to give you a bit of a try to see if you work out. One last question that I ask everybody hmm. is, and we might need to do this again because I feel like we only got up to about the mid-90s <laughs> yeah there's so much in the 2000s my god as you know i'm trying to create a documentary here that will tell the, the entire history of the australian startup ecosystem as well as i can we didn't even talk about smartphones shit yeah you know that can go into the um some of those foundational things that help make the ecosystem kick off uh, you know social networking the advent of smartphones what else did you mention there wi-fi hmm. yeah investors and venture capital had bugger all to do with it. I mean, the, the development of, of angel investors and venture capital in Australia played a role. It, it, it's important, um, but, it, but it, wasn't, it wasn't the tipping point. It was a follower, not a leader in what was going on. In my opinion, Daniel Petrie and, and Craig Blair had a, a venture fund called Netus with Alison Deans, um, and that was kind of the beginning of, of the modern generation of Australian tech venture capital. And, and even then, their primary model, their investment hypothesis was, let's look for ideas that are working in the US, find a couple of smart young people prepared to work really hard, really long hours here in Australia on something which is basically a knockoff of the US idea, and, and see if we can get it up. And, and that was successful. They, they, they did that with, with uh, uh, media properties and, and with, with early SM, SME and, and, uh, and, and services kind of related businesses. But that, that was, you know, that was the kickoff. You'd have to ask them exactly when that, when that was. But it, it definitely, you know, followed rather than, than, than led the expansion of, of the online media companies. And then Blackbird Ventures and, and Airtree were kind of the, the next most important inflection point. And that was, in the case of Airtree, that was Craig and Daniel being able to show decent paper returns and, and cash on cash returns from, from the Netus fund. And in, in uh, Rick and Nikki's case from, from Blackbird, it was basically, you know, Startman hadn't been running for, for a couple of years and they were able to persuade people that, that there was a good deal flow there, that they had curated their own source of, of, of great deal flow and that they, the early paper valuations of those first few Startmate companies made a, an interesting opportunity. So, you know, in each case, the, the startups happened and then investment capital kind of followed and kind of reluctantly, you know, took a, a few crazy, passionate um, VC wannabes to, to try and persuade some of that money to loosen itself up. There's, I was flipping through, you know, Blackbird's first fund. I'm an investor in that and, uh, 
I was flipping through the early foundation um, docs of, of that and, and before everybody had signed on, before they'd closed the fund, they got a, a number of very direct and specific questions from some investors and so they wrote up this this memo back to potential investors, you know, answering those questions. And uh, one of the questions was, you know, how much are the how much are the general partners going to invest in this fund? How much personal skin are they putting in the game? And uh, and, and I talked about how the the one hundred and fifty thousand dollars that each of them were going to invest in the fund was was a, a meaningful, significant commitment for each of them. You know, it was painful. They cared about doing it. They, they each put in 150k. Uh, Nikki, uh, Rick, um, and uh, and uh, oh, <laughs> I have to do this whole answer again. Bill, B- Bill Barty. Uh, sorry, Bill, if you're out there. <laughs> they all put in 150 of their own money, and, and that was because you know the, the sorts of people that were pitching Blackbird Ventures to um, had probably never invested in a tech venture fund before. Had probably never invested in a in a tech company before. And you know now we see superannuation funds and family offices and high net worths and corporates and banks, telcos and airlines, all scrambling to invest in in tech so that so that you know a they're able to you know fend off their own pending disruption, um, but but b just because everybody can see the the outstanding market returns over the past ten or twenty years. But yeah, in those those early days, those those early Australian tech venture funds were really, really hard to raise, and, and those people worked very, very hard for their money. Can we talk about smartphones? Yeah. So what happened with smartphones, right? Was basically in the in the in the first generation of Australian tech startups, to get you to try my my tech startup, I had to get you to my landing page, and uh, and you were you were on your computer mainly at work and maybe in the evenings, right? Because your your computer was in your bedroom or in your study or something, and you, and maybe you had one at work as well, um, and you carried a, around a phone in your pocket that you could send text messages to and from, and you could make calls, but that was all it did. So. In order to get you to, to my web address, I had to get, get you to remember it. And the way that I would do that would be by plastering things in your real world with my ads. You know, So I, I would put ads on the back of buses and cinema screens and television commercials, radio ads, wherever I could get them. There's old people out there who will still remember the sound of, of the Yahoo Yodel, which was our signature sign-off on our television and radio commercials. I mean, you know, we were building one of the biggest online media properties ever, and most of our advertising media was spent in physical spaces instead of on the internet. Right, and all of that was because the time between you, when you were exposed to the brand and when you actually got to sit down and type in www.pets.com, like that might be five or six hours in which a bunch of other stuff might happen. And so, the huge thing that that smartphones changed for the tech startup industry was suddenly we could reach people in between those two tiny slices of their day. You know, so there was a slice of day when you're at your work, a slice of day in the evening when you're on your computer. The rest of the time, you're not thinking about tech startups at all. And now, with a smartphone, we could reach you with a, initially with an email, um, and, and then you know later you would check into a social media app to see what was going on, and we could serve you an ad there. And then eventually, we were able to send you a push notification, actually make you go, "Ooh, my pocket's vibrating," and pull it out. And, oh, Facebook wants to tell me that my friend just liked my photo. You know, I, I mean, even Facebook, like Facebook was I think maybe four or five years old. Before before there was a mobile version of Facebook, you know? So it was, <laughs> you interacted with your high school friends and your college friends and, and you know, so I, I was part of a, a Aussie mobile startup called Blue Pulse, which was, in one of its iterations, was, was gonna be like Facebook on MySpace, but for mobile phones. It was a mobile native social media application because, you know, Facebook had mobile as a, as a very low priority, but smartphones radically changed that overnight um, because it, it gave us this opportunity to, to to interact with customers with consumers with businesses you know all of the time and and uh, we did such a great job of it that they got a bit addicted to it and now we all have to leave our phones outside of our bedroom if we're going to get any sleep I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.